Thursday, October 30th, 2008. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Elizabeth Torres, who's an assistant professor at Rutgers University, New Brunswick. Hi, Elizabeth. Hello. Around the room, we have Nicole Witcher. Hi. Gary Galfo. Hello. Rama Ratnam. Hello. Uh, Todd Troyer. Good afternoon. And Charlie Wilson. Howdy. Hi, I'm Salma Karashi. So, Elizabeth, uh, I wanted to talk to you kind of on a general level. Um, motor behavior has been studied from a a largely engineering perspective over the years, and the notion of an internal of internal models has emerged as an important theoretical concept in motor control. Could you tell us briefly about the two varieties of internal model, forward versus inverse, and how they allow for adaptable motor interactions with the sensory world, just very briefly, just to give us the context? So, yeah, very briefly, uh, what we need to know there is uh, that we have um, internal sensory processing delays in, in the loop, in the motor loop, that are considerable, and um, so it is. It is believed that the earlier earliest uh, segment of the motion trajectory is uh, could be quite unstable because of those delays. And so, um, to compensate for that, a uh, number of years ago, um, people in the field like uh, Daniel Wolpert and Michael Jordan and uh, Mitsuo Kawada and many others that I, you know, we would run out of time. Uh, have done very important work on 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 a kind of model called forward predictive models that anticipate these sort of uh, information, the, the sensory motor information that presumably goes on during these delays. And so they 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 believe that the system has a a model on, uh, of the of the dynamics of the body, and we can. Uh, there is an inverse model of that that you can, uh, given a set of kinematics parameter, um, figure out what the correct dynamics. So, for example, if you have a desired velocity, um, the directional vector, you can uh, estimate the forces that would uh, go with that, and and so on. And and so uh, these these four models will compensate for for these delays and enable us to make a predictive and anticipatory kind of anticipate the consequences of our own actions and and correct according to that. And so um, these are this is sort of the sort of the general framework of internal models and uh, what people use is um, a state. Um, motor control uh, and, and more recently optimal feedback control and stochastic feedback control and they estimate the states of the system and um, what you know so so that that's sort of like what what people do they so estimate the velocity they you know they, they no, I was ask you what this what are the state variables so they the angles Depends. and torques Right. Around all the joints. Yeah, so depends. Of. Depends on. It's, it, I think the general consensus by now is that it's task dependent and context dependent. And uh, sometimes uh, the task calls for a, a right velocity, uh, you know, and that would be the, the, the control variable. So other times it would be acceleration and, or, you know, um, jerk, which is like um, higher order derivatives and things like that. And there are different camps. You know, camps in this. In the in the 80s, the work of uh, Hogan and, and Tamar Flash uh, with the minimum jerk model open sort of um, 
put the, the, the question whether this was um, the control signal would be in the kinematics domain, and then Kawato's group uh, said it would be in the in the dynamics domain. And for a while, there was a little bit of controversy there, but over the years, the, the consensus is now that it's really a task dependent. Uh, variable and it depends on the context in which you do actions and so on. So how do they? Uh, so how is the task space broken up? So what do people do? Like what tasks do people do? When you say it's task dependent, usually there's like two or three tasks that people do to break, and it's broken up because they're trying to break something up. So I was just curious of the how that kind of the field falls apart now in terms of what tasks are people having. Well. Um it's difficult to say, you know, answer that because most uh, experiments in this particular group of uh, computational motor control take place in two dimensions. So the tasks are quite uh, limited in that setup, the tasks that you can accomplish, you know, because it's a very awkward sort of arm configuration. And as a matter of fact, I think it was Daniel Wolpert who put sensors on people and measure the statistical distribution of this. And this is like the, the least visited uh, zone. And, and this is like the most common experimental setup. It's being a two-dimensional arm movement right. where I have to, I'm forced to move my arm and <coughs> in, stay in a plane. In a plane, right. And with two degrees of freedom only. And this is sort of the majority of this. But but there are a number of, of people in, in what is called human psychophysics and other experiments. Uh, the, I, comes to mind the group of uh, John Sectin and Marta Flanders in Minnesota and um, Michael Desmoujet in France and uh, Prablan Janerod. I mean, there's a whole other bunch of people studying movement, uh, Laquiniti, um, Alain Bertos, um, many, many names come to mind, that they, they actually uh, study natural movements, you know, instrument playing, um, tracking, you know, a movement, a, move, a moving target, uh, hand coordination, and those, uh, there are no, so, so to model those are, are more difficult, so it's just more of an experimental approach uh, with an intuition about it and uh, but it, it, it's also very informative of how the kinds of tasks, you know, so, you know, you can imagine that it's, it's different to lift, a, you know, a, a cup of coffee if it's empty than if it's, uh, you know, if it's full or, you know, because it changes the dynamics and uh, instrument using, usage. And there is, um, gosh, I can't remember his name in Japan, Iriki. He, he studies monkeys, uh, tool usage in monkeys, and in the posterior parietal cortex, actually, he has monkeys. Uh, he studies the receptive fields, how they enlarge and to, uh, with the tool usage. It's really cool research. So. so in terms of the approaches used to solve the movement problem, what are some of the new perspectives that cognitive and computer science and neuroscience have brought? Yeah, Yeah, I think that with the advent of... Uh, very high-quality motion capture systems and an interest in in imitating uh, human behavior uh, for animation purposes. Uh, the computer science community has developed a lot of very sophisticated, very nice algorithms to deal with with movement and extracting patterns from motion. And they study gait, and they can make all kinds of interesting predictions about. Um, Posture and you know whether a person is 
deceiving another person just based on how they configure their bodies and things like that. So I, I, I think um, in that community, what they want to do is is now sort of look at the uh, what the neuroscience community has learned about the, the brain, the actual neural activity of the brain and connect the two. And, and I think that the, the community of motor control is going to be very instrumental in, that, in, 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 in making a hybrid you know, field if, if, they, if they open up to these kind of interactions and because they already uh, contributed a lot about, you know, for us to know about adaptive behavior and learning and, and this sort of stuff. And they have a, a very extensive, very rich body of, of, of literature that over the years have been very informative. So I think if they combine that, you know, which has a lot of information about the dynamics of the physics of the problem and, and the body with all this animation stuff and then uh, the neural data that comes from the electrophysiology would be a, a, a great package to understand natural movements better, which is now lacking. Yeah. Rama? Oh, I had a slightly different, a slightly different note. Um, so there are, there are these two components to applied motion, a sort of a ballistic feed forward and a sort of a feedback system. And if you look at the problem I've initially, you can formulate the problem strictly without talking about the brain or neuroscience. You can formulate it as an open loop optimal control problem, or you could formulate it as a feedback you know, control problem. It doesn't matter. Would you, what, what strategies are favored? I mean, what, what are the general strategies that the brain uses in, coming, in doing motor planning, for instance? And you see clearly that there's a combination of both. Yeah. And so I was just wondering, you know, if you have, how would you, I mean, there are a lot of hard problems in robotics, for example, in, in terms of, uh, not in terms of reaching, but more in terms of grasping. But what, what are the strategies that the brain is using that could potentially be of interest in prosthetic design or, in, say, in, in robotics? Can you comment on this? Yeah, yeah. I think that um, this, is, uh, this is a very interesting question. Um, there are strategies that are non-obvious whatsoever. I mean, they are the, the brain, and I have a study, and I have actually uh, covered several of these. The brain uh, tends to rely on invariances. Uh, invariance in 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 um, in the relationship between you know what the representation of the body is internally and this external space for action is so uh, how we you know enrich to grasp for instance uh, how we control all those extra degrees of freedom you know in relation to the space in which we have to move the physical space and and how we articulate uh, the, the the transfer and the rotation component of the hand, you know, so the, the, they're both changing and the brain knows how to articulate the whole arm and constrain all that uh, motion in a four-dimensional subspace, for instance, out of, say, seven degrees of freedom in the arm. And there are relationships between these two that remain invariant no matter how fast you go or how slow you go. And this is a strategy that field like robotics could take advantage of. And it's not just a biomechanical uh, byproduct of biomechanics. This is what is interesting about it. It's actually these kinds of things break down in the compromised system and they can be repaired under certain conditions. So right there, you you know, particularly if you probe the system with different frames of reference and you weight different uh, frames of references differently for your task. So you have um, the frontal basal ganglia loop doing relying more on, say, an egocentric representation and the parietal um, 
basically loop relying on an extra personal representation in, in repairing this invariant. So the interesting thing to me about that is that they're not merely a, a, a biomechanical constraint or a physical, you know, obeying the body obeying a physical law. I mean, that's there too. It's that there is a little bit above that, beyond and above that, that the brain is doing to control this, that it is capable even when it's damaged to actually repair it and patch up whatever, you know. Yeah. I was just going to follow up on that if you don't mind. Uh, yeah. If say I don't want to get too technical on this, but invariances typically would mean there's a so the system is totally overdetermined. I mean there are far too many degrees mm -hmm. of freedom to do a simple say a reaching task. So would you argue that um, one way in which the brain solves this problem is just by sort of you know having invariances which collapse the dimensionality of the system so that the problem becomes simpler, for example? There could be which, one one way to think about it, but the way I think about it is slightly different. So in um, it, for a, I think about it as manifestations, um, you know, like you look for, for symmetries or you look for um, it's certain ratios that maintain, you know, that keep our conserved no matter what. And I think that these are manifestations of, of how we have learned to cope with our physical environment. And these are these are these go deeper into how the brain uh, deals with the physics of the world in which we live and how we have adapted over you know many you know long time to do this. And these are the kinds of information because they they become then a sort of inevitable thing in the system that when we you going to model this system you want to keep that in, that into account because they're going to you know this is the kind of stuff you can't avoid. I mean it's there because it's a law and this is the kind of stuff I want to look for. Laws of the mind that go well with the laws of the of the physical world in, in which we live. So these are manifestations of those. So you study the parietal reach region, um, and you suggest that cells in in this area are encoding the initial trajectory of movements based on stored representations. Um, and as such, this region serves as you called it the hippocampus of the cortex. I don't know if you want to go on record saying that, <laughs> um, but could you explain that a bit? Okay, um, yeah, it, I, I call it that because I started to look a little bit into the literature of the hippocampus and how controversial it is, and I thought that the art field was really controversial until I saw that one, and it's like, well. But there are all these arguments about uh, path integration, for instance, and the idea that you have to, you know, figure out the speed of the movement uh, by you, basically you walk and and then you know you integrate you integrate back you know one step at a time and you add up and you get the path length that way and that's one way to do it but to do that you have to have a notion of how long you're going to take to to cover that path that goes right back to the problem of how we study movement whether we study it subject to a to a pretty fine duration or whether we open leave that open and don't care much about that constraint you know and just open up and in the, in the case of the parietal system, it seems to be relying on a time invariant representation that it doesn't. It's not a time as opposed to a time dependent representation. So this would be go. This would be uh, would go hand in hand with a cognitive math theory of, of O'Keefe and Adele and all, all those people that uh, people like Grigory Buzaki, uh, you know, are opposed to or, or, or argue against or something like that. So it's like more of a, a representation of time that relies on those associations that you make between the spatial, uh, the spatial world around you, those spatial maps that the, the posterior parietal cortex seems to have. 
and your internal temporal representations. And I don't see it as one or the other. I see it like we have both and we constantly use both. So in the representation where you don't rely, you know, time is not a dependent variable. It's rather you get it from your internal your experiences. This is something you can do without actually having to move. So this is the you can in you can get a path length without actually having to walk along that path for a particular length of time and then integrate back one step at a time the steps that you do. Okay. So you can do that. You can stand you can stand there and imagine going over there and 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 back and and this is a property of the brain that does not depend on the time that you spend to go there because time did not enter in that representation. However, when you want to know the dynamics of your body and how that those internal delays map onto what you want to do, then you actually take that walk and you sense that and you take this notion of elapsed time and now you are into the path integration domain of the hippocampus. So you can go back and forth all the time. And I think we do that all the time. We actually, we, particularly for, for new motions. So in, in, in all motions that are automatic and mechanical and it's, you know, it's just something else that so we don't have to really envision every time that we move what we're about to do. But when we, the motion is new, if you're, if you're studying uh, Kung Fu or, you know, or some kind of routine like that, you actually rehearse that in your head. And then you, you play it out. And then you do it back. And it's a, a, trial, a trial and error mechanism. And we do it all the time. We do it as infants. We do it as adults when we're in a different dynamics environment. And, and the beauty about it is that we can adapt all the time. I mean, like all that field of force, uh, field learning and adaptation as, as demonstrated. Gary? So you spoke about a, a spatial or a topographic map in the parietal cortex. As you go up to these higher centers, the, uh, the topography gets kind of hazy or whatever. So you mostly record from single cells doing arm movements. Is there a, a representation in the parietal cortex of the body, or does it, can a single cell integrate the spatial representation of arm and leg all in one cell? I would think yeah, I don't know the answer to that, but I would think that it would be it would be parsed out like like in other parts that you would have uh you know like the PRR is the rich region and it correlates with with uh, the arm the arm postures like our our experiments found um but I would think that you would be able to find something like for the leg as well but you in know, a different but, place no, in, in, no, in 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 that in that place. in that region of of parietal cortex, I would think that you would ah. find something there too. But you, we we haven't evoked that representation because we exploit the arms primarily. But if we were going to ex exploit the legs, and in particular in these monkeys, the legs are like another pair of arms. We probably would find a representation of the legs that we could we could use. Yeah, exactly. you, mentioned kung, you mentioned kung fu. Earlier. That's exactly, you know, you yeah, expect. exactly. But, but you mean there's yeah. no motor homunculus in that sense? I mean, uh, like there's a representation, like a, uh, a map of the body, essentially, a motor map well, there's of the some body. There's some reason. LIP is specialized for, for saccade. Yeah, but, you know, it's, very, it's like a continuum. So when you record from PRR, uh, you get cells that also respond to saccades. And you get cells that are more responsive to reaches uh, only. And not to saccades, and you know you get both. And then in the in the LIP, you also get cells that are a little bit responsive to riches, but not. So it's just a continuum. Like you need that uh, to to do things in both in both frames of reference. You know, eye center or body center. You really need to have both representations so that you can 
you know, have an overlapping, you know, a set where you can transform back, you know, and, and forward and inverse transformations for that. Because you, you, you need to have points in both from both frames. Yeah. So, yeah, so... So, so much of that is, is context-specific, task-specific, and you see so many um, top-down modulations of these sorts of effects. I mean, it's really, it really depends on what you're probing for, I guess. Is the, is yeah, the I, th- I would think so, yeah. But let me just go back really quick to the issue of time that you, you said before, and, and in relation to, uh, to, to these adaptive uh, mechanisms yeah, right. and, and the four models and the internal models and so on. Uh, I was very <clears throat> striking by the work of uh, Sandro Musaivaldi in 1999. He published a, a, work, a work paper in PNAS with uh, Michael Condit. Uh, it, and, and the question that he posed was whether we had a central representation of time in the brain for motor learning and adaptation because we are capable of learning all these dynamics all the time, all these changes in dynamics and all this. And essentially, he looked for it and he failed to, found it, to find it because he, he used all these force fields similar to what people use in that field, uh, velocity-dependent, position-dependent, you know, they're called viscous or curve-based and so on. But he also designed a particular force field that was time-dependent and scaled with time of the movement. And this, the, 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 the subjects adapted, they treated it as a, as a velocity-dependent field. So, so this was an interesting result because you see all this velocity, you know, whether you talk about kinematics or dynamics and you argue which one of the two is what the brain is planning, they're time dependent, okay? So you need, where is the representation uh, for that time dependency? Where is that notion of time where you can, the next change in, in position occurs how many milliseconds from this change in position and so on? Where is that coming from, okay? So what I think is that we might not need it explicitly like that because we could, um, and this goes back to the hippocampus thing. We could get it from uh, the spatial maps and associations with our internal delays as we move. So th- this is a different notion of time, okay? It's not that notion that we get from the actual movement. In, and in that sense, it might be that we don't actually need to have that explicit representation of time, a, a, a ticking clock, so to speak. This is related to a series of experiments that people have done looking for segment segmentation of movements, too, so that I break my movement up into five stages and maybe I look ahead at the next stage and that sort of thing. And uh, those, are, those models are all based on there being a sort of movement clock. Yeah. And when you first look at, for example, your work in which there's a a movement that's sort of planned for 200 milliseconds, and then when we get there, we figure out what we'll do next. Yeah. That's sort of what happens in your experiments, so that uh, it, it makes one think, well, there really is. There's a, there's a kind of phase, this phase of the movement and the next phase of the movement, and they're separate. But it, when those phases are looked for explicitly, they usually disappear, right? They're yeah. What you, what, yeah, it's hard to find. What you do have, though, is the ability to make that path. And you time it later, but you do have that ability. And that's what I find remarkable, that the brain 
has this ability to separate the two. So even though you're segmenting your motion, the path is a continuous thing, can be a continuous thing, even though you don't know your timing yet. And then you'll figure out the timing. So, so Elizabeth, this is dealing with um, avoiding objects with a stagnant object. What happens if you have a moving object that you're what you're trying to move? And what happens to the timing? And the the path is no longer constant, right? So then, what happens? Yeah, um, it can't be completely planned ahead of time. No, that's yeah. what makes that special, right? So with right, the initial yeah. path, so, that initial segment. Yeah. You, so if you only care about a, a little bit ahead in the future, mm-hmm. you don't have to worry about the entire. Um, the entire trajectory of the movement. So you just do a little bit, you know, and and that's it. That's all you care about because, you know, you know that it's, it's, there's uncertainty in the next, you know, 400 milliseconds. Why worry about that? So this is in contrast to earlier models who would have the notion of a desired trajectory and, and say, okay, well, so what we compute is the entire trajectory with the, the curve and, and the timing to travel along that. Uh, from beginning to end, and these models still prevail in a lot of these of these uh, formulations and experiments. This is a, this is a very very strong notion, and I think we have both. I think we if, if the movement is uh, completely automatized, you can afford to have a notion of a desired trajectory because and a timing because if you've done it a thousand times. You know exactly how long it's going to take you the thousand one time. So, so that that calls for for you know that that would be well characterized by models of those kinds, you know. Um, but in a case, a more dynamic case where you're changing, you know, like what you're saying, then that that model would not make sense because um, it would be computationally too expensive to have to compute this trajectory and then recompute it every time that something gets on the way and. There are more current models that try to deal with these, and they, I, I'm still not convinced that is is that, that that's the go to, the way to go about it. But they're trying to do it one step at a time. But every time that they're gonna they're about to do it, they still explore many many possible full trajectories and evaluate which one is the the one that is gonna take you the next step. Okay, but it still contains the time component, which makes the problem very highly intractable when you start you, you scale try to scale up and so still I don't think that's the solution uh, right you know for because of computational reasons and you can't really go past like two degrees of freedom but it's an attempt to try to uh, solve uh, the movement as you go okay so so that, that raises an interesting question of whether the, the error that you're trying let's see upon emotion the error that you're trying to minimize is the error that is a global error to the final destination, or is it an error that is locally computed for the local segment? Yeah, so so it which, goes it, it, it goes back to that, and I think it's task dependent and context dependent. So there are situations in which we will call for a local error, and you will do just that, you know. But there are situations where you can afford to do that because you have more certainty, and you've done this so many times, and you is is. And I think that, that once the system, I think those motor programs migrate somewhere, and 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 you know, I don't know where Sebel and Baisagambe, I don't know, but they are there somewhere. Memories that you can rely on because. Because you you don't do this all the time, but you also have to have the other ability to do it locally and to do it, you know, without having to compute ahead all these trajectories and all this. It's just crazy, you know. I mean, the lion eats the monkey. <laughs> so, but when you said segments, this, uh, the kinds of experiments I was referring to are the kinds where there are unexpected perturbations. Right. And then the question is, how often 
do I check right. for an unexpected perturbation? Right. And is that happening on a regular schedule? Mm -hmm. And the answer is experimentally sort of no. I deal with the unexpected perturbation when it happens. So when it happens, no matter when that was, I immediately start to respond. You can see the motor system is as quickly as possible responding. It doesn't wait for five more clock ticks, then start to respond. Even though the five clock tick thing could have been true and makes perfectly good sense. And from yeah. an engineering point of view, might be a wise solution. Yeah. Seems not to right. It's, that's what I. That, that's what I was trying to get at. That yeah. it seems to be doing it in a different way. Yeah, and it's not an engineering solution would be completely different. Yeah, right I, I, I agree. Yeah. I mean, this depending is on the engineer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, but I, I sort of agree. And what in any case, in general, I don't like to, uh, you know, marry myself to, to a particular solution and argue for that because the brain is so plastic that we have so many right. alternatives to do. I mean, I would like to explore all those alternatives as much as possible and from different perspectives, from a computer science perspective, from a cognitive science perspective, from a psychology You know, and before I, I you know, I settle on something because I, I think the brain doesn't settle on anything. It's, it's really in, on demand. I mean, that's the beauty of it. So, so I have sort of a, a more abstract question for you because you just mentioned everything that you've done and are doing. You've gone from... Computational, strict computational models. Well, actually, you started before that with patients in a different realm, and then computational models, and then to uh, recordings in, in the uh, monkey model, um, and now back to computation and, and patient data. So, how do you? What What is the importance to you of, of following this trajectory in your career, and how has how that worked for you? Why Why did you follow this path? Yeah, I, I don't know, but it, it, it to me it's like. You know, why bother understanding all these? Why? I mean, just for the heck of it. I mean, that's one way to go about it, but I would do it to help somebody. I mean, I, I had dinner uh, recently with a person that has Parkinson, and it's something that we take for granted, which is just, you know, pinch a piece of food on the, on the plate. Uh, took this person forever just because of the tremor. And immediately I was trying to think, you know, how could you cancel out that tremor? I mean, maybe... You know, using similar mechanisms to those, you know, earphones that are now so fashionable, you know, where you, just, you, you play with the noise and you try to understand the noise in the system and, you know, try things like that. I mean, that we, if you could understand, uh, like, simple things like how, what is the reference frame that this, this system would rely on if it was intact, you know, and, and how would we you know, compensate for that with some other, with some other sensory domain, you know, we could help it, you know, but just, just bypass the whole damage. So to me, it's an application of, of this whole knowledge, body of knowledge, what I would like to get at the end, you know, just help somebody who could be my dad, my mom, you know, we're all going to age and that's, things are going to break down. So why not try to fix them? You know, if you understand them, how they work, you know, so that's sort of why. Well, thanks for being with us, Elizabeth. This is great. Thank you. This is the Neuroscientist Talk Show.